Well, my desire is that this uh, text this morning is going to impact you in the same way it did me this last week. I have a, a new view of something God speaks pretty directly about, and uh, it came as a result of a visit to my dentist. I um, was at the dentist this last week and uh, um, was, was there for uh, teeth cleaning. And, you know, every six months you do the teeth cleaning thing. And so I sit down in the dental chair and uh, the technician puts on her gloves and says, do you have any allergies to latex? And I said, well, no, I, I don't. I don't think I have any allergies, uh, just one. And she said, oh, what, what's the one allergy you have? Looking very concerned. And I said, um, it's kryptonite, actually. <clears throat> okay, see, you all didn't get it, all right? <laughs> the guys laugh. All right, so this happened in the last service and then in Saturday night service, and I couldn't hardly believe it because guys immediately know what kryptonite is, right? Okay, so think Superman, all right? Okay, so what's the one thing that caused Superman to be incredibly weak? Kryptonite, yeah. Okay, so my wife said, no, I thought it was like one of those power pills he took. And no, that's underdog. That's not Superman. <laughs> Kryptonite is what Lex Luthor put around Superman's neck in a chain and it weakened him. So I'm talking to this dentist and, and as she's working on me, she's asking questions and I obviously can't answer. Her fingers are in my mouth, okay? So I began tuning her out at that point and I started thinking, what would it be like to have a kryptonite-type item in my life? Something that took away all my capacity to operate, that made me incredibly weak. I couldn't do the things I was intended to do. And I immediately started thinking of sin, the blackness, the darkness of sinful activity. Wouldn't that be something if we had something like kryptonite that just hung around us that we could see and say, oh, that's what's weakening me, to make it really visible. So as I went into this text this week, I'm looking at that thought that I had in John chapter 8, verse 21, when Jesus begins talking about sin, and I was thinking about how kryptonite, like sin, weakens Superman, sin weakens us. And it takes away our capacity to operate in the way that God intended for us to operate. So a lot of credit to my dentist and, and what they did for me because they gave me this whole new thought process about how God views sin in our life. And that's where I want to take you to this morning to help you see how God views sin and what he thinks of it and what it does to us in terms of our relationship with him. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 8 this morning in the New Testament, and while you're holding your finger there, I'm going to also ask you to look up Luke 23, and you'll, I'll have you go to that later. Maybe you can bookmark Luke 23, because we're going to start out in John chapter 8 and verse 21. If you're new to New Hope, you may not know that there's Bibles in the pew rack there in front of you. You're welcome to follow along with that, or the passages will be up on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible of your own, those are there for your benefit. We would love for you to take one with you when you leave today. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's word. So if you would follow along with me in John chapter 8 and verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now that sounds really familiar. That sounds like something we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 7, doesn't it? Chapter 7, look with me on the screen, verse 33, or turn back one page in your Bible. 
Verse 33 says this, I will go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now that's very similar to what we just read in John 8, 21. What's the difference? What was added? John 8, 21, listen again. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus adds the warning of all warnings. I'm going someplace and you're going to seek me, but where I'm going, you can't come. You're going to die in your sins. That's a pretty huge warning that he's saying to this group. Now we understand he's in the temple. He's speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a large crowd gathered around him. They want to hear what he has to say. And he hits them with this, this huge warning. Now the reality of this truth, and I know this is a really hard thing to start out with this morning, but the reality of the truth of this statement that he makes right here is that those who reject Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the one who can redeem us and make us right with God, the consequence of rejecting him is eternal separation from God. That's what's being said in that verse. My sin, unchecked, non-canceled out, can and will separate me from God if I don't deal with it somehow over the course of my life. And what Jesus is saying, you're rejecting me, and so you're going to die in your sin. Now here's the problem in our society today. Mankind has conceived in their mind that it takes no effort whatsoever to enter into God's presence at the end of their life. Mankind has conceived that there's no difficulty whatsoever in securing heaven. And so as a result, they make no effort whatsoever to obtain a place in heaven. Most people just stumble along. This was summed up for us by a theologian all the way back in 1832. His name is Charles Simeon. Look with me on the screen. They consider not what kind of a place heaven is or what is necessary for entrance into it. So what we're talking about is a place where God's absolute holiness is so pure and perfect it cannot allow sin into its presence. And individuals underestimate that. So here's a truth. What was true in the time of Christ 2,000 years ago, first century A.D., what was true in 1830 is true today in 2011. Individuals believe it takes no effort whatsoever to get into heaven. And what was true in Scripture at that time is still true today. So is it not reasonable to say that if individuals were being taught by Jesus about this principle in the first century A.D., that people probably still think the same way today? I have evidence that they do. I'm going to play for you a video. It's about two and a half minutes long. And what this is is an individual who has a microphone on the street, and he's just putting the mic in front of individuals one-on-one, asking them to answer this question, what does it take to enter heaven. I want you to see their responses and then we'll come back. You know individuals like that? I guarantee you work with them. You associate with them. They're probably in your families. Most individuals have no idea 
and they hope that at the end of their life, everything's just going to work out. Now, if you said to those same individuals, whether on the screen or the individuals in your life, here's what it takes. If you die in your sin, you will not be able to join God in heaven. Most individuals would say, I don't want a God like that. He's heartless. Who wants to be part of something like that? So Jesus had to follow it up one step further. If you look very closely at verse 21, he said, you will seek me. Now, who's he talking about? Me being the first person, obviously. He's saying, you will seek the Messiah and you will not find another Messiah. I'm going to be gone. You're going to be looking for another solution. They cannot possibly find another solution for they're rejecting the only Messiah. Therefore, they will die in their sin. Therefore, where I go, you cannot come. See, his thought process, the way this is working out, he's making it very clear for them. Because you see, to reject the Son is to reject the Father. That's what Scripture says. Look with me on the screen, John 5, 23. All will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. So we're left with a question. How then can you enter into the Father's presence if God cannot look upon sin? If you're loaded and defiled with sinful activity? Because God will not allow sin into his presence. What then happens? Look with me on the screen, Habakkuk 1.13, speaking of God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. And this is what most people miss. In an unconverted state, it is absolutely impossible to stand in the presence of God. If you have not been washed of your sins, that's what Scripture tells us. And on this point alone, most people are unable to account for the method by which they would enter into God's presence. How does it all fit together? The same was true in Jesus' day. Believe it or not, people did not understand how to put the pieces together. That's why you see in the next verse, in verse 22, they're asking the question, what, will he kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide? I'm going to show you why and how you can understand this. Because it never enters their mind that they will not be going to heaven. Look with me at verse 22. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. See, they understand, first of all, he's talking about his death. They understand he's talking about dying. That's why they, they associated when he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. They knew right away he's talking about death. But here's what the Jews believed, especially at this time. They believed that to commit suicide was the absolute most unpardonable sin. And that if you committed suicide, it would drive you immediately to the deepest, darkest place of hell absolutely unforgiven. And so they're asking this question because they believe they're going to heaven. So it must be that Jesus is going to commit suicide and go to hell. That's why they're saying this. He's not going to commit suicide, is he? See, they're so self-righteous, but they're absolutely unprepared to meet God. Now, what I want you to note is who is he saying this to? 
Look with me very closely at the next verse, verse 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And you've seen this word world. We've seen it in the study of John so far several times. It's the word cosmos. And what it literally means is your place of habitation, an orderly place where you dwell. So Jesus, when he says you are from below, he's not saying you're from hell. What he's saying is you're from another realm. You're from this creation. We all are from this creation. I am from another realm. You are of this world. I am from another world. So he's got us going back to origins again, where he came from. But just so I'm very clear on this, true believers are not of this world. Our home is in another place. As a matter of fact, it's clear for us in Colossians 1.13. You see this, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, your mind is focused on the things of God. You're no longer of the dark domain of this world. So he keeps on going now, verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see what he's doing here? This is like a funnel, and he's staging it. Point is getting narrower and narrower, and he's drawing their focus right down to the ultimate core of the issue, which is unbelief. And in the midst of that, Jesus makes an absolute, unqualified statement. What is that statement? In the midst of this, he says, I am. Now, if you don't mind writing in your Bibles or circling things, I would circle the word he. And here's the reason why. The word he is not part of the original Greek text. Jesus said this, literally, unless you believe that I am. Now, why is that familiar? Because when, G- when Moses was on the mountain and he's talking with God face to face, Old Testament stuff, and he said, God, what is your name? Whom shall I tell the people that you are? What did God respond with? I am that I am. Ego, I Jesus uses the exact same phrase here. I am. And unless you believe that I am the unequivocal God, Yahovah, you will die in your sin. So that's what he's saying in relation to this statement. Unless you believe it, you're going to die in your sins. I will tell you that I will be negligent as a teacher of truth, as a person who pastors over a church, if I do not emphasize this point so that you understand it is unmistakable. Those who reject Jesus as God, as their way of salvation, cannot be saved. That's what Scripture tells us. So he uses this word, unless. We call it the if clause in theology. I remember studying this in Bible college. The if clause was associated constantly with this word, unless. Unless you believe. And it introduces an absolutely powerful thought. R.C. Lenski quoted it this way, the if clause is pure gospel because everything hinges on it. When Jesus uses the if clause, the word unless you believe, which means there's a way out. You don't have to die in your sin. There is an if clause. It's the only possibility of escape. So what are we to believe? 
unless you believe that I am. So what's encapsulated with that? That he is the eternal God, second person of the Trinity, came to earth, lived a sinless life, raised as a child, lived a sinless life, crucified on the cross as a perfect man. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Crucified, resurrected the third day, ascended to the Father where he is our intercessor and will come one day again in glory and power. That is what's encapsulated in I am. When that statement is made, they understand. You'll see later in this passage as we get into it next week, they're ready to stone Jesus. They pick up rocks because they want to kill him for using this name. Go with me to verse 25. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Now that amazes me, because there's no ambiguity whatsoever with ego emi, I am. That's a very familiar phrase. So they're asking the question this way, just who do you think you are? I'm sure Jesus must have become exasperated with them. I have to believe that was what was going on. What did they think he's been repeatedly saying time and time again? He responds with saying, I've told you over and over and over, right from the beginning. And as clear as he is about his statement, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Is that not amazing? That there's this hardening of the heart? So between the revelation of what Jesus says of who he is and their level of comprehension is this vast gap in between. And in the midst of that gap is all the baggage that they bring to the table. All the things that they've arrived at with preconceived ideas about what the Messiah was going to look like all the comprehension about what it takes to get into heaven. That's what's in between their belief structure and what Jesus declared, and they're not putting the pieces together. But Jesus says they will come to a point when they will grasp and they will understand who he is. And that point will happen in Luke 23. I asked you to turn to that earlier. If you don't mind, if you've got a bookmark, flip over to Luke 23. I'm gonna read to you the account of the cross at the point of the crucifixion. You're not gonna see it on the screen. That's why I asked you to put your finger in your Bible. I'll just read it to you out loud. Notice what happened at the end of the crucifixion. Chapter 23 and verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three o'clock in the afternoon. Because the sun's light failed, The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he had said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. Verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. At that moment, they realized they crucified the king of glory. That's why Jesus says in verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, you will know that I am he. 
clicked with them. They were able to put the pieces together because of the crucifixion. Oh, that hurt my chest. I did that last night and thought, I won't do that again, and now I'm going to be black and blue tomorrow. So Jesus says this, verse 28, there's coming a moment when you're going to get it. Verse 28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So he's being really clear with them. Undeniably, there's a coming day when the truth is going to be confirmed, and it's when you lift up the Son of Man. And when he's crucified, you're going to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And notice what Jesus does in the midst of talking about his own death. He reminds us of something incredibly comforting. Look with me at verse 29. He has not left me alone. That is a great promise. As a matter of fact, it's the same promise that's given to us. So Jesus has a profound sense of the presence of God in his life. That's that same promise that's given to you that Jesus speaks of because of one reason. What's the reason? He follows it up by saying, he has not left me alone. Why? Because I always do what pleases him. Jesus, in fellowship with God the Father, no sin in his life, carrying out the Father's will, the same basis for the assurance by the Son to you. Let me remind you of that promise that Jesus gave you. Look with me on the screen, John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. If you don't have that one in your Bible, you should write that down. John 14, 18 is one of the greatest promises to you, the church. You're not going to leave us alone, and he does not leave you alone. He will come to you, and you will see him again. Now, we see as a result of that passage, many came to believe in him. And I'm tempted to stop there, but I want to go one verse further because there's something very critical here. The belief they're expressing is not yet saving faith. This is what we would call head knowledge. They're believing in him. They've taken the first step towards him. They're giving assent to the truth that he's declared. But Jesus follows up that statement in verse 31 by challenging them whether or not they're really believers. Go with me to verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So we're talking to believers now. He's talking to individuals who have expressed that they believe the things that he said. They've got some head knowledge. They like what he said. But Jesus recognizes there's individuals whose faith is not really saving faith. This is the way Leon Morris summed it up. I want you to see his quote. This is addressed to those who believe and yet do not believe. They're inclined to understand what Jesus says is true, but not yet fully prepared to give complete allegiance to him. And church, I want to caution you. This is the most dangerous place to be. To be in the place where you believe the things in the Bible, you buy into them, you say, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth there. 
But it's not yet saving faith unless, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples if you continue in my word. See, to recognize truth is in Jesus, but do absolutely nothing with it, renders the decision meaningless if you're not demonstrating it. Merely concurring with the facts, merely saying, I agree with this truth, is just head knowledge. Even the demons do that. Did you know that? Scripture says that even the demons believe and they shudder. That's what James 2.19 says. The demons also believe and shudder. They shudder at the thought of the presence of God. So belief, like we're seeing here, is the initial point of contact with Christ. The Bible warns that not all faith is saving faith, though. And that's what I want to hinge on this morning. This is this last verse that I want to really bring out because Jesus brings out his measuring rod. And what is that measuring rod? It's this word continue. I didn't put it in your notes. I missed doing that this morning. But you'll see it up on the screen, the definition for it. The word is menno. Those who menno in my word, they are truly my disciples. You see in the midst of it, the definition for the word menno is dwell. What do you do when you dwell? It's a place where you live. It's a place where you abide. It's where you exist. So you have your existence in God's word. If you continue in my word, if you menno in my word, if you make it your life, then you are truly my disciples. So what we're really talking about here is perseverance. The perseverance of the saints, enduring, staying with it. John was very aware of this when he got to the end of his life. John, as an aged man in his 90s, looking back over the course of his life, wrote this about individuals who were pretenders. They looked like they were believers at one time, but they really weren't. Look with me on the screen, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not really all of, of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. See, this kind of faith that we're talking about requires everything. Yet, as you're going to see next week, it brings complete freedom. The freedom in Christ. That's where we're going to go next week. The freedom that you have in Jesus. So what you see going on here is he's forcing pretenders to come face to face with the reality of how much do I really believe this? Check yourselves. That's what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Why? Because there can be no dichotomy whatsoever between believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior and accepting him as your Lord and your God. That's what he requires of us. So we see the same warning from James. James wrote this, James 1, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who what? Who delude themselves. They fool themselves into thinking, yeah, I'm really in, but they're not really in. So Jesus wraps it up by saying this in verse 32. And it's a classic statement. You see it all over the world today. On the, on the backside of saying, if you continue in my word, verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. 
I've seen that statement emblazoned on the gates of universities. I've seen it on the letterhead of charities and nonprofit organizations. They have no idea what it means. Matter of fact, I think if the university officials knew that what that meant, they'd probably go out and scratch it off because Jesus is really saying, I am the source of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He alone transforms your life. He alone reveals truth to you. He alone brings true freedom. That's where we're going to be going next week. So here's the pathway that Jesus has laid out for us so far. I want you to see these three points. What you've seen before is this. Number one, believe in him. Verse 24 says specifically, unless you believe, what? That I am. Number two, continuing in his word, menno, dwell in it. Sharpen yourself, church. When you're invited to get into some of these studies, jump in feet first. Iron on iron. Men with men, women with women, jumping into those studies together. Get into those prayer circles. Spend time sharpening yourself and, and challenging yourself. Did, did I really know that before? Wow, that brings out new truth to me. That's what happens when you dwell in God's word. It's a new understanding and it takes you further and further into your walk. So we've got one, believe in him. Two, continue in his word. Number three, know the truth. And that results in being made free. Here's a truth. No man in the history of the world ever spoke like this except one, the Lord Jesus Christ. No man ever cared for the entire creation of the world so much that he spoke with love in his heart when he said, deal with that kryptonite hanging around your neck, that sin that's weighing you down. Deal with it in such a degree that you're not living in sin. Discover the truth so the truth sets you free. So I'm gonna allow, ask you to allow me to request of you this, that you would examine yourself over the course of this week ahead of you. Examine yourself in your own condition. Do not imagine for a moment that if you don't thoroughly embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, your God who died for you, that you can obtain heaven any easier than these individuals that we're speaking about this morning. Don't delude yourself. You have to be fully surrendered to him. And it requires exercising faith that you believe in him. It is not difficult to discover which of the two categories you fall into. What is your heart set on? What are you focused on? And I'm not asking about what are you investing the most of your time in. God knew that we needed six days to labor. He said six days you're going to labor and one day you're going to rest. It takes a lot of work to maintain our social life and our occupation and our families. It requires a lot of our energy. I'm not asking what do you invest most of your time in saying, what is your heart set on? The things of God or the things of the world? And if you arrive at the conclusion that it's the things of the world, deal with it. Come face to face. That's why Paul wrote, examine yourselves. That's a good thing. If you're feeling a little uncomfortable this morning, that's a good thing. That's, that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps you've never even arrived at the place where you're a believer. And I, I know when I speak to our church over the course of three services, I'm speaking to a lot of believers, but there's always in the midst of our services individuals who are still trying to check this thing out. And maybe you feel like you've got that P3 
piece of kryptonite hanging around you and it is totally destroying your life. I'm going to challenge you this morning to confess that before God. Because scripture tells us specifically, if we are faithful to confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. But that requires you being in a relationship with Jesus. It requires you recognizing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior who died for you on the cross and that he is your only way into heaven. Let me read to you what we looked at two weeks ago, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It speaks very specifically to believers. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't forget that. You have a responsibility confessing your sin before your Father, dealing with those things in your life. It can destroy you. You can have this place of conviction in your life if you just yield to God. Do what David did. David, king of Israel, who at one time cried out because the sin was so deep in his life, he said, God, examine me and see if there's any wicked way in me whatsoever. And then I will tell transgressors of your ways. Even David, king of Israel, had to say, God, I need you to look at me, help me, identify what's going on in my heart. So don't think that you're above that either. I have to do that all the time. Say, God, examine me. Show me, am I doing anything wrong that would keep me from a better relationship with you? So we've dealt with this issue. I know it's tough stuff. But if you feel like sin's weighing you down this morning, I invite you to come and talk to me after the service. I'd be happy to engage with you. But here's another step you can take. There's little prayer cards in the front of the pews, in, in the pews in front of you. And they, on the front, say, welcome. But on the back, there's an area where you can write your prayer request. If you have a specific area that you're dealing with and you'd like the prayer team at New Hope to come around you and pray for you, we'd love to do that. If you want to do it anonymously, do it anonymously. You don't have to sign your name to it. Just write down those things that you're dealing with, and we will pray for you. Right now, I'm going to pray for all of us. So would you join me in that? Father, I thank you, first of all, that those of us who know the name of Jesus and can declare him as our Lord and our King stand before you holy and that we are seen by you as righteous and pure because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But there are things that creep into our life, Father. There are sinful activities, and those are the things that we need your Holy Spirit to point out and bring conviction on so that we avoid the snares and the pitfalls. Father, we want to know that we are truly belonging to you. So I ask that you help us to remember to examine ourselves, and that can only work through the power of your Holy Spirit. For those who fill this auditorium this morning, when I say the word amen, Father, it's going to be very tempting to reach for the car keys and pick up the snacks out in the atrium and begin to forget. So God, I ask as we move through this week, as we take on the day ahead of us, that you will remind us of the things that you want us to remember. God, I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hope you have a powerful week in Christ.